Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome my good friend, Dr. Stephanie Curry, to the guest chair today as we talk about corporate boards and DEI. Stephanie earned a BS and MS degrees from Boston University, an MBA from Simmons School of Management, and an MS and PhD from Boston College School of Management. She has won numerous awards for her research, teaching, and service, and has even testified before our U.S. Congress on this topic. She is an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of Business and a visiting faculty fellow at Harvard Business School. Dr. Curry, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you today, engaged in conversation about this topic. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. I believe that the PSG project is important to myself and other students for a plethora of reasons. I've often struggled in, in certain organizations where I was tolerated, but not celebrated. And I met so many amazing people, successful people, a Native American, Latino, African-American, and they were all interested in the same thing. But the PhD project provides kind of like a resource, a platform for us to collectively come together on this journey. That's one of the reasons I love the PhD project is because of the consistent support they, they give to all of us. Like I said in my last episode, the PhD project is erupting hard this season. And I want to send a huge shout out to the PhD Project for sponsoring this episode. Without them, so many of us would not have been living the business academe dream. And without them, I would have not had met some of my closest friends like Stephanie. So Stephanie is not only our friendship that has brought us together, but the research, advocacy and consulting that we do around DEI have brought us together as well. And I can't tell you how proud I am of the work that you're doing and the impact that you're making in this world. So like the others, this episode is going to help so many people. So Stephanie, let's get started. So before we dive deeper into your work, can you tell our listeners what led you to do DEI research and why are you so passionate about it? It's such a great question. And, you know, I will say before I dive into that, I am so grateful for, for your continued friendship over this many number of years. It's friendships like the ones that we have that really keep me engaged and invested in this topic, which is the other question, right? Why do you keep doing it, even though it's hard? But the initial impetus for engaging in DEI research and all of the topics within the broad umbrella of DEI study, whether I'm looking at corporate DEI practices, board diversity, or relationships across differences, is the things that I've personally seen and experienced in organizations. And so much of I want to pay, what I pay attention to are the hierarchical relationships, dynamics between people who are in positions of power and those who are not in those positions of power, and how to engage people in positions of power in doing more than their share of this work and creating better experiences for all of us. And you know, my own personal experiences working in the workplace that was not happening. It was you don't get opportunities and resources and the ability to make impact unless you have the right job title, like a high status job title. And it was pretty nebulous around how any of us who were lower level or junior, and particularly those of us who are people of color, were going to gain that type of position in, in the organization. And so, you know, I just always saw that division and I saw people who really had a lot to say and a lot to offer, not be able to contribute to their organizations 
in meaningful ways. And I just felt like it just didn't have to be that way. But what I knew and what speaks directly toward the impact that I'm trying to have with my research is all day long, we can have and convene people of color to talk about these issues and we can support and build each other up as we should. But we also have to try to gain support from people who don't get it, who are in positions of power so that they will help us achieve these diversity, equity, inclusion outcomes as well. So that's basically what I've been focusing on and why I'm so motivated to do this work. Excellent. And so as we talk about people in those positions of power, one of the things that I like about your research is delving deep into board diversity, corporate board diversity, right? It's like this ultimate seat of power when we think of organizations. And so could you explain to our listeners why you think board diversity is so important? It's such an interesting piece of organizational life that I think most of us don't understand. And then I think about as scholars and then certainly as people who just work in an organization is very unclear until somebody points it out to you how much power boards have regarding a focal organization or firm or and also in society and with investors and with government leaders. It really is one of the most quintessential seats of power that exists in organizational life. And so when I think about the board and what it has the capacity to do on any given topic, it has a capacity to do a lot. It has the capacity to motivate the CEOs, the C-suite leaders to do things that they don't want to do. It also has the capacity to shape how we're talking about organizational practices, how firms are choosing to respond or not to things that are happening in the external environment. So without saying, without even talking about DEI, that's the power of a board. And then an individual board member is somebody who's basically saying, hey, I think you should consider doing the following things for the following reasons. So then when you bring in the topics of DEI, which is the topic that I like to talk about with respect to board diversity, you see the potential in so many meaningful ways is here's a topic that many companies superficially have engaged in some in, in much deeper ways. And then you consider this very powerful set of board directors who help the executives and the firm leaders to think more strategically about all the the issues facing them, talent, community, marketplace. As a board director, you have to speak up and help the leaders to understand what's important and why. But what my research shows is historically, a lot of board directors don't decide to make diversity their topic du jour. They decide that there are problems with being the person who's going to speak up on diversity. And that's the reason why it often doesn't become a firm level issue. And so for me, When we're talking about board diversity, we're not just talking about the composition. That is really important because we do know that the more likely suspects to bring up topics pertaining to underrepresented people are underrepresented people. That's not to say that people who aren't underrepresented won't do it, but the more likely, they're more likely to do it if you're underrepresented. They're more often more passionate about these issues. If we want firms to take seriously anything related to diversity, whether it's the internal workforce, the community, the marketplace, then board directors need to be speaking up on these issues. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I'm glad you made that distinction between boards in general caring about DEI, right? And then also representation. So actual board diversity, they both matter. Representation matters. But 
even if you have an all X board or all Y board, DEI should still be important for all of those directors. And it should be all of our jobs, right? If we're in those seats of power to make these initiatives have some actual substance behind it. Well, I have to tell you, one of my, my friends in so many things that I work on, but certainly in this conversation around board diversity is John Rogers, who's co-CEO of Aerial Investments with Melody Hobson. And he and I have written some pieces together and had a lot of conversations. And he says the same thing in any conversation you ever hear him talk about board diversity is representation matters, but understand that not everybody who looks like us, who are black people is getting on that board and bringing these issues. And he absolutely believes that is an imperative that if you get that seat, that you should be unafraid and unequivocally, unabashedly supportive of diversity, equity, inclusion related conversations. So, you know, when we think about this idea and sort of to go academic on this for a second is there's all these mixed effects of does board Mm -hmm. diversity matter or not? Well, if no one's talking about diversity, then having a diverse board is definitely not going to matter to issues of diversity, right? It's like common sense. And then when you start to listen to John Rogers, or I interview board directors, black uh, directors, I interview white women directors, I interview a lot of people who do not want to talk about diversity on their board, and nobody's talking about it. So that is a critical dynamic that I'm examining right now is the underrepresented directors who do versus the underrepresented directors who doesn't and do don't. And that's not to give a pass to white directors. I'm not giving them a pass. But it's just, there is a part of this representation story that's sometimes implying or explicitly uh, suggesting that because we're underrepresented, we will be down for the cause. And that's not always the case. And for good reason, right? Because we both know of the research that has come out that also shows that it's a cost. It's a huge cost for women and people of color when we do take on these issues. But when our white counterparts take them on, they actually get a boost and some of the outcomes that they that you would expect people to receive. And so, yes, no one gets a pass, but this conversation is so important for people to realize the stakes at which these decisions are made and the impact they have on so many people. And so as researchers, one of the great things about our career is that we learn so much from the work that we do. And so I'm interested to hear some of the most intriguing things that you've learned as you've spoken to these board directors or various organizational leaders with respect to their roles and attitudes towards DEI initiatives. So what is fascinating to me is how board work gets done. So we all know that there's some number of formal meetings that they are supposed to have per year. And, you know, you can read everything about those and it's largely the same process uh, with meeting agendas and minutes. But that's not solely how board work gets done. Board work gets done on yachts, at country clubs, in ski resorts, in all kinds of places, elite spaces that the average person does not have access to. So what has been fascinating in talking particularly to Black board directors are people who did not grow up with those types of resources and opportunities and finding out for themselves once they got onto the board how much more embedded in country club life they needed to be. And we know some of this, right? It's like you got to learn to play golf or not, right? What's your elite activity so that you can blend in with all the other people who spend a lot of money on extracurriculars and talk about business in doing that activity. But then it just, it, it evolves into this 
other level of like uber elitism among board directors. And, you know, I think they end up sounding just like those of us who aren't in those positions of power. You know, this doubt around do they belong or not? You know, should I, if I enter into that space, if I get a country club membership, is that somehow selling my soul as opposed to not? And so I I found that very fascinating because they actually do need to be part of these things in order to get the board work done. But I just find this intriguingly fascinating is these alternative informal spaces, but they're not easily accessible, right? You have to have money in status and they're members only spaces. So you can't just like show up at the country club and put your money down. You got to get invited in. So I've just found this to be something really worth like thinking about further. Well, I'm so glad that you have shared that with us because, again, this is a very nebulous area where people hear about, oh, boards of directors, we hear about those things, but a lot of people don't know. Like, we really don't know. And so I found myself also as a person who does not know how to play golf. I have been contemplating, right, taking lessons and things, right? I'm a part of some members-only groups and things like that. And, and so it really just pulls back another layer of exclusion, right, of what people need to go through in order to get to that. So even if you break down these more visible, more salient barriers, there still seems like there are a hundred more after that. And so I know our listeners, just by your sharing that detail with us, it will be another aha moment for them to think about just all of the steps that it takes, right? These are steps that I love what Dolly Chu called headwinds and tailwinds, right? So these are stuff that just become tailwinds for a lot of people, but headwinds for others if they do have that access and it's easier for them to gain access to those types of environments. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, and I think just to add to it is many of us who are underrepresented did not grow up around these things. So not only are you trying to like figure out how to be a board director. You're trying to figure out how to navigate these spaces where people culturally and resource-wise are very different from you. And I know for many people of color, that's the experience the minute you walk into an organization. But now we're talking about the 0.5%, right? We're talking about the 0.5% and still questioning your sense of belonging in those spaces. And these are multi, like all of these people on boards are like multimillionaires. Like they're not hurting for anything financially, but that sense of, do I belong here? Or how come, you know, my situation is so different from theirs is still something you struggle with, even when you seem to have a lot resource wise. So, you know, there are more and more calls to expand how we think about diversity, which I totally understand and agree. However, you know, what I don't agree with is that some of these calls are based on the notion that like we've arrived or like we've been there, done that with respect to like some of these foundational DEI groups like race and gender. But particularly with respect to racial equity issues, I think we've actually haven't made as much progress as we think we've made. And so this push, particularly when it comes to like board and things like that, you know, or other organizational leaders, this push to focus on other groups. To me, I feel like it's strategic in order to stymie like further racial justice progress. And so I'm just curious to know, what's your take on that as well? Yeah, it's the what about me-ism that is so challenging, right? Because I think when we think about making progress for any of these movements, it requires that we be other-oriented. 
and understanding how important that is. And so when I hear people saying things like, we've focused enough on race and gender, I feel like we're doing that fine. Let's focus on something else. To me, it's showing that struggle, that tension between I don't feel right about this because it's too much about them and not enough about me. And that's fundamental human like self-interest versus other interests, like pro-social piece of that is, is to what extent, like where's your balance as a human with your self-interest versus your other interest? And then can you really see as other interest as actually being meaningful for you because it's part of making the collective better? So that's sort of what I see is underneath it. But no, we haven't arrived when it comes to race and gender. We're saying the words without cringing every five minutes, right? This is, remember when people couldn't talk about race or say race without whispering it or black? I mean, there's still people who still can't do that, right? You know, you're talking to them. And with respect to gender, it's just a question of everybody has different perspectives on whether gender is sort of a meaningful dimension of difference to talk about when you see women in leadership, because that's their understanding of gender is women. It doesn't matter which women they are, right? If they're white or not in leadership, then gender is done. So the funny thing is, is how we see something about visibility makes us think that there's progress, but visibility in and of itself is not the, where we, the outcome that we're looking for. We're not just asking to be seen and to be represented. We're asking to be treated respectfully, equitably, and to have opportunities and to contribute. And we're very far away from that with respect to race and or gender and race and gender. Thank you. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you share some similar sentiments. And I was hoping I wasn't the only one who have heard that or have thought the reasons why some of those notions have been pushed by, by some groups of people. So, you know, you talked about the work of boards before and, and some of the backdoor work that the boards do, particularly since the murder of George Floyd. A lot of corporations have come out, you know, stating that they want to diversify their boards. And we know from the research that it actually suggests that black leaders typically have more experience, more education and some better track records than their white counterparts before they're invited onto boards. So could you, again, pull back the curtain for us a little bit to talk about this election process. How do people end up getting these really coveted invitations, right, to serve on these boards? So there's two parts to this. One is the getting nominated by somebody who is credible and who is legitimate, just like a members-only organization. It's the same dynamic, even though um, I would say objectively and out in the public, that is not the going discourse around this. It's like become a leader, you know, right? be visible, do great things, perform well. It's like anything. You know, you got to be magically like picked out of the crowd. <laughs> you need to have a member who's going to like put your name down because let me just sort of tell you what I learned in talking to Blackboard directors is when some firm is now convinced that they need Blackboard directors, they go to the Blackboard director who they know and say, who do you know who is Black who we might be able to consider? And so that person, what I have, I've heard all sorts of strategies. And what the strategy I've heard most commonly is they actually have a list of people 
who they know, who basically put their name forward to this firm. And so that's how it's working. It is not often working. If there's an executive search firm involved, there's still some level of who has vouched for you. And most of the time, if you're Black, it's a Black director who has vouched for you to even be considered in the pool that the executive search is willing to put forth. So you do need to be in the spaces where other directors are and they need to know you because that is largely how recruiting still works is somebody needs to be able to say who has that seat already that you would make a good board director. It's like, you know, we're academics, right? Who's your letter of recommendation (laughs) coming from? And it should be from somebody who has a very good reputation and status in that class of people, in this case, board directors. And so for the person who is not yet connected into this community, the good news is that all of these people are now creating consortia of prospective Black board directors, for example. There's like one out of, I believe it's like Santa Clara. There's something in Silicon Valley. All these things are popping up. Now, how one gets an invitation to become part of one of those, I think, largely speaks to who's connected to the program directors. So these program directors create these programs, they attach it to some university or some other entity, and they proceed to invite the people who they know and their friends to be part of this, like, how do you become a director, an effective director and get a seat? So you do need to get involved with those. And that's just a question of like, who do you know, right? Who do you know who's part? of one of these initiatives. And I know that we know, I will not say all their names, we know several people from the PhD project who have now gotten invited to join these kind of pop-up professional development and training sessions with people who are running it, who are Black people, who are on corporate boards. And so the idea becomes that the companies can reach out to the directors and say, who came through your program, who's good? And then beyond that, there is this, it's become a little bit more concrete, but it's still very nebulous in terms of like what knowledge, skills, and abilities do you need to actually have to be effective on a board? Historically, there have been a lot of people who've been appointed to boards just because they all went to the same university in grad school. And so there wasn't much thinking about knowledge, skills, and abilities back then. And so there will be a disconnect between long timers, oftentimes on boards and the new people coming in who are bringing in all this stuff that the long timers didn't have. The other piece of this is, is important is that boards are evolving in their understanding of what their job is. And mm-hmm. so if we think about boards as being strategic and actually helping the company, then knowledge, skills, and abilities are really important. And so that's why newer people are being held to this different standard of needing certain capabilities that perhaps the people who've been there in the past didn't have to have. And so I want to come back to this idea of these programs. Like I'm all for pipeline programs, a huge supporter of them. But I want to delve deeper into this idea that particularly underrepresented people need to have this like additional training to go through before they are considered. And I just want to know from your experience, do you think, again, their white counterparts are coming into board seats this way as well? We all know that there's always some tapping on the shoulder, like someone's vouching for you, sponsoring you. We know that happens. But it seems to me 
again, that it's another barrier for underrepresented people to also have to jump through because a lot of opportunity costs, right? I'm not saying this information is valuable, this networking is invaluable. But again, when I'm seeing my counterparts who may not look like me, they also get to the same destination I get to and they don't have to, you know, jump through all these hurdles. It does become a bit disconcerting as well. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that as well. So it is true. It is true that the average white man on a board did not come through some pipeline development program. And so, you know, one of the people who I interviewed for my board diversity study is a cousin of mine. And she was like a longtime executive at a tech company. And she has this very same perspective is like, just the best way to know whether somebody's good at it is just give them the job. Don't put them through hoops. So she's of the mindset that anytime somebody tried to put her through some developmental opportunity that the average white man didn't have to go through, she was like, I'm not doing that, right? Because it's showing to me that you don't trust in my capabilities as much as you trust in him. So that brings us to trust and familiarity. So then we already know that the quote unquote, they don't necessarily always trust and believe in our potential as much as we do. And so what do these pipeline programs do? Even though it's could be, be construed as jumping through an extra set of hoops, it's breeding trust and familiarity. And so it's the people who are running the program who may not really, really know you, but they, you know, there's like three degrees of separation between you and whoever got you on their radar. They are learning who you are and how you think. And that is helping them to feel like, okay, I can vouch for this person. I can put my reputation on the line. And so when ABC company comes to them and is like, do you have any quote unquote diverse directors, which is how they talk about it, not how I talk about it, diverse directors for us, they can say, oh, Oscar, I know him really well. And he, this is the types of things he cares about. This is what he talks about. So that's what it's doing is it's creating trust and familiarity, which is the real barrier to getting a seat on board. Thank you. Thank you for breaking that down. And so as we, again, talk about these board seats, we know gender quotas for boards have been around sometime in other countries like Norway and France, but quotas are typically shunned here in the U.S. However, in 2020, California passed a law mandating gender quotas for locally headquartered publicly traded companies, which states they must have at least one woman on their board. So I just wanted to get your perspective uh, with respect to quotas and what insights the research give us um, in terms of their impact. So the interesting latest development has been like that, that law plus the one that was passed, I believe in 2021, that was focused on underrepresented groups, but as part of underrepresented groups, it was people of color and people from the LGBT community. Those were actually just shot down in California in the last couple of months because of the quota issue. And here in the U.S., baked into so many of our legislative policies is the idea that quotas are bad when that's not the policy in other countries. And so that's where these things become problematic in the U.S. is is we created policy that says you have to do that without a quota. And if you do a quota, that's discriminatory or whatever. And then other countries are able to do that. And so when I was interviewing, so the first set of interviews I had done on the topic of board diversity was around, like right before and around the time that the initial gender quota law in California was passed. And I primarily interviewed white women directors. And what was fascinating was, well, first of all, 
like they didn't believe at all in any way, shape or form that they got their seat because of a quota, which is always Mm -hmm. really interesting, right? The other piece was, I would say, when they talked about diversity being meaningful, they thought that there was a way to make diversity meaningful or gender diversity meaningful on the board without a quota. And so what was interesting was, I think one of the more constructive strategies that I saw in my data was actually holding the board accountable for thinking about the knowledge and skills and abilities it needed in order to advance its goals and what it was supposed to be doing in strategic work. And so when they started having these conversations about knowledge, skills, and abilities, for example, they're like, well, we cybersecurity is becoming like a big thing. Nobody on that board knew anything about cybersecurity. And so they had to go find someone who knew something about cybersecurity. And in that conversation, they were able to say things like, can we make sure that we are painting a broad brush or casting a wide net around who we're considering? Because it's important to have all types of diversity, including gender diversity. And I'm sure we could get some women candidates that way as well. So that was, they saw for themselves that the quotas, they were able to gain some traction on representation without the quotas. So much so that when California struck down, well, when the federal judge recently struck this down, there was a notion, like some people were panicking. I was getting called by lots of news outlets, right? This is a bad thing. Is this going to be the end of women on boards? And I'm like, no, because they had other reasons for putting women on boards besides the quota. So I think it has been a, a great strategy in the countries that have no issues around quotas to advancing representation. But it's much more tenuous in a country like the U.S. where quotas is just not something that we can get away with. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for updating our knowledge about that as well. Like I said, you just months ago the ruling came out. And so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned before, you know, was this developmental program for people who are interested in getting on boards. We talked about some of the ways board work gets done. What other advice would you give to companies about how to make it more equitable for people to be considered to join these boards as well? Yeah. So we remember we're thinking about the board level. Basically, and, and then when we're thinking about boards, remember there's lots of different kinds of boards. There's like mid-market firms, which are smaller corporate. There's like publicly traded versus not. There are like venture capital boards. There's so many different types of boards. I will tell you at the end of the day, you get on one, they're going to come after you to be on others, especially if you're underrepresented. So it's like, how do you get on the first board is really the question we're trying to answer here. So getting on the first board and how to how to companies sort of or boards, I should say, intervene in that process is it comes back to the ability and the, the skill at which individual board directors raise this as an issue. So it's not like the board in and of itself is necessarily sitting there thinking about how can we get more diversity? It's like individual people saying we need diversity on the board for the following reasons. So it's like board directors have to make the case and they have to feel motivated to make the case that it is important to create, to increase the diversity of the board and to largely think about increasing the diversity of the board as also helping the company. So it really is the board director's job 
But above and beyond that, you know, there is a hierarchy on boards. There's a lead director, if it's not the CEO, who is the chair of the board, or it's called the, you know, it's usually the CEO and chair. That person is the person who is sort of like the puppeteer (laughs) beyond all of this, as they determine what gets put on the agenda. They get determined who gets called on, whose voices get elicited, like a manager. They determine what topics we keep coming back to. And so really, it's the chair's role, the lead director's role to keep this topic front and center. And so when you think about it, think about all there, there are so many, not so many, but there, there are a number of, of Black directors who are chairs of boards like Melody Hobson, who I mentioned earlier, co-CEO of Aerial Investments. She's chair of the Starbucks board. She cares very passionately about issues of diversity. She's with like a black money manager firm. She spent her entire her, her entire career. So you could see how from Melody's seat, she's asking, she's making sure that this, the issue is, is staying front and center. Now, there's a difference between making sure that the issue is spoken about versus, as we know, actually changing things. But I would say that that's the first step is making it an agenda item, recruiting people to the board who actually care about this topic, giving space for it to happen. And then I would say the last piece is many boards just, you know, the higher you go in organizations, sometimes the less familiar people are with diversity topics. I should also say the less likely they've had contact with people who are different from them. And so sometimes these boards, it's not the people who are the most aware of these issues. And so they got to invite people in. And I would say, you know, there's two pathways that become really important. One is to just invite the chief diversity officer to the board meeting to make a presentation. They might tell you all the things that are increasingly important with respect to diversity. And then the other piece is to offer for yourselves as a board opportunities to learn more. So for example, I'm actually doing my first board level. It's a publicly traded company, board level diversity training this August, which it will be slightly different from other things that I do, but they have two white women on the board. They have a black man on the board. And then the 10 other people on the board are white men. And they just want to know more about how they're supposed to be thinking about this topic and what they should do. So that's sometimes the place to start is, I think, for us or for them not to assume that they actually already know, but to create opportunities for them to learn more. That's great knowledge that you're sharing with us. So it's the organizational leader's job to actually do the work of the company. The board is there to offer strategic advice and and for governance. But we do recognize that the corporate board, they have a lot of power in terms of directing initiatives that the leaders of the company actually go about. And so can you talk about what are some of the most effective ways that corporate boards can ensure that the DEI initiatives that leaders adopt and are responsible for, they actually are successful in their organizations? I think you made it like a really important point there is to remind yourself that the boards, especially at their best, are strategic advisors. But then there are people who sit on the boards and the CEO is on the board and they're either the chair of the board, the person orchestrating how everything goes down, or they have a seat on the board where they get to talk about a lot of things and 
do firm level presentations. And so there is, they are in the room, (laughs) regardless of whether they're in the room directing the conversation or in the room right alongside everybody else. So you actually are directly talking to the senior most person in the organization when you're doing board work. I would say, as we think about diversity work specifically and board directors roles in that is it does become important to make sure that it is a standing agenda item as part of the formal, the four to six times per year meetings that the board is having, because if it is not seen, it is not discussed. And if it is not an agenda item, they are not talking about it. Even if it's like diversity update, does anybody have anything to say? Or if it's something hopefully much more impactful, which is inviting the chief diversity officer to come and make a presentation around inclusion and belonging at the company and why that hasn't improved in the past some number of years. So that brings me to the evolving role of board directors in this diversity conversation. So what the paper that I'm working on right now is I'm, I'm talking about symbolic versus substantive diversity work. I'm referring to symbolic diversity work as just trying to increase diversity on the board. I am not saying it's not important. It is actually really important, but there's a lot more that needs to be done once we have diversified the board. And so the substantive is digging deeply into the issues of inclusion and exclusion and equity and inequity that become risks for firms and for the people who work there and the community. And so what I'm looking at in my research is how do we get what is driving some of these boards to do the more substantive work, which is to pull in the diversity officer, which is to get their hands in understanding the company's DEI data, not just the D data, not just who's going to be the next leader. Like, what are people's experiences at this company? And is that a problem from the, for this company that the people of color hate working here? And so as a director, the substantive work becomes asking those questions, like literally understanding that your job is to also know how talent is being managed in the company because talent is tied to the co- how the company does. And so you can't just decide that talent issues aren't yours and then certainly impacts on the community. So that would be my best advice, especially for the board directors, is get engaged in the substantive diversity conversations because those are important as a, in, in their strategic advisory role as well. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for sharing that with us. And so as we come to a close in this very lightning conversation, I'm going to ask you perhaps a difficult question to answer. And you've done so, so, so many impactful projects, but I want to want to get your idea of what would you say has been some of your most impactful work to date? And why is that the case in your perspective? Here's how I think about impact. I think about impact as if people are actually using it, right, in some way. To me, I don't feel good about my work unless somebody's actually finding that it helps them in some way. And as academics, we're trained to consider oftentimes impact as the number of times your research has been cited. But that's also a function of how long your research has been around and a function of how many of your friends in your network are willing to cite you. So that is a measure of impact, but that's not my measure of impact. My measure of impact is, has the science that I've created sufficiently helped people 
in organizations, feel better, know more, and do better. And so for me, I think about my LEAP framework, which is something, it's a framework of allyship behavior. And in the perspective that I take on this, and the perspective that I took on this was back to where we started this conversation. There are people who are in positions of power who seem to feel paralyzed around knowing what they need to do in order to affect change, improve somebody else's experiences at the workplace. And so this LEAP framework started off as a class exercise that I developed for my students in response to their, there's so much bias in the world. What can I do from my sphere of influence to change anything? I don't have any power, which is like such a fascinating idea, right? You might not have positional power, but you might have personal power. So I went with the personal power thing. That turned into a presentation that is publicly available on the internet, which turned into the basis for how I, over the course of the two, the past two years, have engaged with firms on what should I do personally with my personal power and resources to help someone else. And it now has turned into two in-progress academic studies. And so for me, that was the pathway was... It was this idea that I had to make an impact using research-based insights, almost like hypothesis-driven. And now I'm testing the hypotheses and hopefully academics will like it. (laughs) But it was uh, definitely not the traditional way of making an impact, but it's the one that I think keeps me engaged in this work. So you and I both agree on how expansive we view impact in this field. And I can say without a doubt, you are having an enormous impact on this field. And so I can't thank you enough for joining me today in the guest chair. I've learned so much from you during this conversation, and I know our listeners will too. I wish you continued success, my friend. I look forward to seeing those articles in our journals, and I look forward to citing them and talking about them, as well as all of your forthcoming publications. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, The PhD Project. Please support their mission by donating to the PhD project. And if you're interested in a PhD in business, you can find more information on their website by visiting www.phdproject.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Mary. Until next time, peace and love.